morning and welcome to Rising. Thank you for joining us today. We've got another great show to deliver and I think we want to get right to it. All right. Well, President Biden told reporters yesterday that he will hold Iran as responsible for the deaths of three soldiers stationed in Yemen. Yes. I do hold them responsible in the sense that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. Well, we'll have that discussion. We'll see. Nikki Haley, meanwhile, called for the outright assassination of Iranian leaders over the killings. You're saying now's the time to hit Iran? Now's the time to hit their leaders. It's different. Don't go and bomb the what country. What about their infrastructure? The infrastructure in Iraq and Syria. You start with that first, you do the sanctions, and you take out a couple of their leaders. That's the way in you start. In their country? In their, if they're in their country, or you do like Soleimani when they left the country, you figure out where they are. Our special operations can do that. And then you take them out. That will send a message. We've got to do this immediately. Now, in case you missed it, one State Department spokesperson refused to confirm if there's any evidence that Iran is responsible directly for those soldiers' deaths. Iran was behind the attack. What does that mean? Have you seen evidence of financing or directing anything specific to this attack, not just generally, but specifically? Uh, so maybe I need to clarify further um, from what Lita had mentioned. We know that Iran funds these groups, like Kitab Hezbollah. We know that these IRGC-backed militias are the ones responsible for attacks on our troops in Iraq and Syria. Uh, beyond that, we're, we're doing an intelligence assessment. We don't have, I, don't, I can't give you today that attack linking it to Iran. We just know that Iran funds these groups like Qatab Hezbollah and other groups that have attacked our forces, but I don't have more to share on Meanwhile, The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein reports that U.S. military personnel in Iraq are on standby to forward deploy to support troops in the case of on-ground U.S. involvement in the Israel-Hamas war, according to an Air Force personnel memo that he obtained. So, uh, I, I think First thing I wanted to note, so Joe Biden saying he's selecting targets, he's planning for reprisals, um, an interesting contrast with the Joe Biden from the year 2020, who I've seen this uh, tweet reappearing everywhere. Maybe if we have it, we can put it up, but I'll read it from January 6, 2020, in response to Donald Trump drone killing uh, Soleimani. Biden says, let's be clear, Donald Trump does not have the authority to take us into war with Iran without congressional approval. A president should never take this nation to war without the informed consent of the American people. I agree. The Joe Biden of 2020 was correct. What has changed between then and now? So I, I, I fully uh, agree that, and we heard from Lieutenant uh, Colonel Daniel Davis yesterday on this matter as well, um, our troops were attacked, they were killed, and it is perfectly reasonable for the U.S. to respond to the perpetrators, to the militant group that did that. Now, these groups are supported by Iran. I think that's not very much up for debate, but whether that means that we should escalate hostilities with Iran itself is a very different matter. It's one that, again, would, would require congressional approval, for one thing. It's not just—we can't just start a war with Iran, and that seems to be something that Joe Biden has forgotten in the last four years. When progressives, leftists, people who are broadly 
disaffected from the two-party system are harangued during election years and told that the reason they have to ultimately vote blue no matter who is because Donald Trump is a tyrant and a dictator, or whatever Republican happens to be up at bat at the time, he's a tyrant and a dictator, and will do things like start illegal wars, escalate global conflicts, get us involved in nuclear brinkmanship and the like. I hope it puts to bed all of those arguments, this moment that we're in right now. And that, that tweet that you just read out, it has gone viral and gone viral for a reason. Because one of the most significant cudgels that Democrats used to get people who even back in 2020 were not enthusiastic about Biden to get on board was this idea that Trump was a uniquely irresponsible statesman who should not be at the helm. And what we have seen, in fact, is an escalation of global entanglement during the Biden administration, which outstrips this is not an, any effort to rehabilitate Donald Trump's record, which was also too hawkish for my liking. But it frankly outstrips what Donald Trump did. And so going forward, it's, it's really unclear how Joe Biden can continue to hold himself out as anything other than the other side of the same hawkish bipartisan coin that has been ruling the United States of America for a really long time. And I really just want to go back to this initial point. The State Department has acknowledged, as we just saw in that clip, repeatedly that there is no evidence tying this attack to Iran. Saying that Iran funds these groups is akin to saying that whatever Israel does, as it is being plausibly accused of genocide, as it is digging up graves and sending people uh, dressed in, uh, as, as patients and doctors into hospitals to assassinate folks in the West Bank, not even in Gaza, as it bops, uh, drops um, thousands of tons, tons of bombs and destroys most of the housing in northern Gaza. All of those war crimes, you could say, are America's doing because we funded that war. You could say, in light of the uh, the the government's choice to withdraw funding from UNRWA, because there are these accusations that 12 uh, UNRWA employees participated in October 7th, that America did October 7th, because implicitly we funded those 12 UNRWA employees that are being accused of the same. The logic of this extends to the most absurd of realms. But here we are, not just using that logic to justify any incidental strike or uh, retribution, but doing so in the middle of a global context that is already escalating in a unwieldy and deeply dangerous way. Right. I mean, the, the reality is that many of our the terrorist groups, extremists in the Middle East, do in fact hold the U.S. responsible for the reasons you spell out. Yes. Um, was 9-11 justified? Right. They're, they're thinking is, is that it is. Um, now, are we going to hold ourselves to different standards? I would argue that we should, and that the number one goal should be U.S., not even really a who's at fault, but a what is in the best interest of U.S. national security, and what's in the and also what follows the prescripts of the Constitution, which is that we can't just start a war with Iran. Now, Nikki Haley, interestingly enough there, again, way too hawkish for my likings, but in fact, I mean, this is quite an indictment, but sounds more restrained than some of the people we've heard from, including um, uh, Lindsey Graham in recent days, who are saying that we should hit Iran now, meaning hit the actual country of Iran, hit Tehran. They said that. Dan Crenshaw said that. Um, John Cornyn said that. Nikki Haley said we should hit the militia group, fine, and then we should also kill Iranian leaders the second they 
set foot outside the country, which is what we did with Soleimani. So again, that's uh, her, that's the foreign policy she's putting out there. Um, well, what a spectrum of options to, we have. To, right, similar to what Joe Biden yeah. has has declared. Um, you're, you're really damning her with faint praise there by saying that yeah. she she uh, favors uh, she compares favorably to Lindsey Graham and the like. But these are the options that are presented to us in our two-party system currently. We'll continue to follow uh, updates on this escalation, of course, so stick around. We'll have more rising for you after this. The border continues to remain a politically potent issue going into the 2024 election season as both sides blame the other for refusing to fix the problem. During a quick meeting with the press on the way to Marine One, Biden said he couldn't do anything more on fixing the border unless a contentious new Senate bill made its way to his desk. Let's watch. Have you done everything you can do with executive authority, or is there more you could do? That's all I can do. Just give me the power. I've asked for the very day I got in office. Give me the border patrol. Give me the people. Give me the people, the judges. Give me the people who can stop this and make it work. But Republicans disagree. They say Biden is willfully derelict in doing his duty to protect the southern border, and that states like Texas are forced to pick up the slack. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said as much on a Fox News appearance yesterday. Let's take a look. This is the number one issue in America. Americans want a secure border. If Joe Biden federalizes our National Guard, that would be the biggest political blunder that he could make. And that's why I think he will not do it. That said, of course, I am prepared in the event that they do make such a blunder to make sure that Texas will be able to continue to secure our border. Meanwhile, Republicans faced questions regarding former President Trump's role in stalling the previously mentioned border bill. The former president has openly said he thinks passing the bill is a mistake and has attacked Senator James Langford over his collaboration with Senators Chuck Schumer in drafting it. Trump has openly urged his allies in Congress to block the bill, but when pressed on this by CNN's Manu Raju, House Speaker Mike Johnson seemed to deny that this was happening. Let's watch. Manu. Uh, the former president has made it clear that he doesn't want you guys to move forward on this, and judging by his comments, he clearly wants to campaign on this issue. Have you spoken to him about the Senate proposal, and are you simply trying to kill this to help him on the campaign? No, Manu, that's absurd. We have a responsibility here to do our duty. Our duty is to do right by the American people, to protect the people. The first and most important job of the federal government is to protect its citizens. We're not doing that under President Biden. We, are, we have only a tiny, as you know, razor-thin, actually a one-vote majority right now in the House. Our, our majority is small. We only have it in one chamber, but we're trying to, to use every ounce of leverage that we have to make sure that this uh, issue is addressed. I have talked to, to former President Trump about this issue at length, and, um, and he understands that. He understands that we have a responsibility to do here. The president, of course, President Trump, wants to secure the country. President Trump is the one that talked about border security before anyone else did. He ran on, as you remember, building the wall. Why? Because he saw this catastrophe coming. He knew that if we did not get control of it, we would be in this situation. And that's why President Trump took executive actions. He used his executive authority to get that system under control. President Biden came in reflexively and did exactly the opposite. And that is what has caused this crisis. It is well documented. I'm happy to share with you all, if you haven't seen it yet, our documentation of the 64 actions they've taken. At least half of those, more than half, could be immediately reversed with a stroke of a pen. And Joe Biden refuses to do it. And it is outrageous to us. Yes, ma'am.
House GOP efforts to seemingly quash the bill come as Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas faces two articles of impeachment over what Republicans have said is a failure to prevent an invasion at the southern border. <sighs> yeah, again, help me and maybe you can help me understand the posture that Republicans are taking right now is to say, here's a bill that addresses the border crisis in a, frankly, I think objectively much more meaningful, you can call it more conservative, whatever way, than, than the kinds of policies Democrats have agreed to in the past. And I think the extreme nature of the bill that Democrats say they're now behind is reflective of how desperate they are to pass uh, to funding for Ukraine and Israel. That being said, the posture of the Republican Party right now is no, we don't want to take this deal. We don't want to take this bill, not citing any evidence that they think they can get a more aggressive bill or that there's really, there are much, there's much in the way of specifics that they want that's not in this bill, but just saying that they want Joe Biden to do it via executive authority. So you have legislators saying that they would prefer a Democratic president using executive fiat to do something, shut down the border, rather than taking what is in their power to get enormous amounts of billions of additional funding for, for, uh, for border guards, get more administrative law judges uh, to, to process these asylum claims so people aren't caught and released, as uh, so many people have complained about. And all of this, that would be an enormous benefit to people addressing what they've—what Republicans are describing as a crisis, which is a historically high number of border crossings happening right now. They're saying, no, we don't want that. We're going to keep fighting this out. Well, obviously, some Republicans do want it. It's a it's a, it's a Republican sure. bill that yeah, was worked on You're right. You're right. Um, that McConnell is in support of and uh, Senator uh, James Lankford put together. Yeah. And the problem is that— a lot of conservative voters and media consumers and, and more conservative members who are loyal to Donald Trump um, oppose the bill for a variety of reasons, one being obviously they don't want to give Joe Biden anything to run on whatsoever that's positive. I think that's fair. But also, they don't think it goes far enough, frankly. They think any sort of uh, putting into law and practice that we will allow a certain number of illegal border crossings before more aggressive steps can be taken is something conservatives don't want. They want, on paper, to be their zero illegal border crossings, and they don't want to commit that to law. They also don't want to fund um, Ukraine, for sure, is a big—is a, a major conservative issue. So, um, you know, doing, doing the—I mean, McConnell wants to do it. Members of the Republican elite want to do it. A lot of MAGA don't anyway. So a bill that doesn't accomplish, that from their standpoint, what they want on immigration, but also is tied to Ukraine funding, is a lose-lose, according to people who are still very loyal to Trump. And you can—I mean, you can see in Mike Johnson's remarks there that Trump is against it, so they're against it. Yeah, so I think that's a big part of the story, and Mike Johnson's denial that it is seems—I mean, she's very uncredible, given the very public statements Donald Trump has been making about wanting to shut shut yeah. down any I mean, Democratic it's still legislative effort. It's still Donald Trump's party. He opposes right. this legislation, but so this is, uh, they, this, they'd be crazy not to. But I, I, I am interested in having a question, about, uh, having a conversation about what to actually do about the border crisis, because, I don't know, I think most Americans are more invested in what's happening at the border and whether or not it is, in fact, secure than what is personally beneficial for Donald Trump. So on one level, it is a little bizarre to say 
I, I can maybe see this argument if Donald Trump were doing very poorly in the polls, if he looked like he wasn't going to be able to beat Biden, if he needed extra juice in the, in the fight against Biden, that maybe justified putting American citizens in a position, in his words, to suffer mightily because of this immigration crisis. I think that maybe he could justify that on that ground, saying, well, it's more important for me to be president because there's a whole kit and caboodle of things that I have to take care of. So sit this one out, America. You're going to have to suffer the vagaries I've been describing for years at the border because my electoral chances are more important. But he's not even in a desperate electoral situation. Quite to the contrary, he is excelling already. So then to say that I'm going to block Biden's um, the, uh, this bipartisan border legislation, which I want to be really clear about, you keep saying, and people keep framing it as where you know the, it would allow this number of illegal border crossings. What this what this says is that currently under our uh, immigration policy, people can come and they can claim asylum. We have a constitutional we have we have legal constitutional legal rights to asylum in this country. What is the what causes a backlog and what causes so many people who have not had their asylum claims vetted and processed to be here? undocumented, is that there are not enough people to process those claims given the volume of people that have come across the border. So what the legislation does, is it doesn't stop or not stop illegal border crossings. There's no way to just magically do that. We don't have a, you know, electric do dog fence across the border. What it says is that normally you have to allow people to in and to stay, hang around while we have their asylum claims processed. You're not allowed to just eject people from the country because we have certain protect constitutional protections for people who are seeking asylum rights. What this says is, if border crossings are over a certain amount, 5, then it day. kicks in. We no longer have to respect our constitutional obligations to met right, out to, to address people people's back. asylums claims. So regardless of if that is at 5,000 or at immediately, at, the, the, the argument, the, the zero argument is not that there will be no, zero border crossings. It's that we are going to absolutely reject this fundamental American asylum principle, the principles that are inscribed on the base on the base of the Statute of Liberty, the principle that allowed so many people to come here as they were fleeing persecution over, across the world, and say we're basically going to reject our entire asylum system. And what Biden's, what part of Biden's bill is saying, we don't have to do that if we simply just fund our asylum system better, and we can process these claims in six months instead of the five years that it takes for people to get through, and then you wouldn't have all these people languishing here uncertain of whether or not they have a real claim or not. What Trump and his supporters, who are a majority of the Republican Party, want is more of a total shutdown of the border, including the asylum claims. They want zero illegal border crossings. They, I think they're very skeptical of the asylum system in general. I think they think people Evidently. are abusing, that are, are claiming political asylum when they have no actual reason to do so and are using that as a loophole to get into the country and they want to put a stop to it. But do you that's see how that's not shutting down the border in any way? People can come across the border and choose not to claim asylum. And, they can and, come across the border and be immediately sent back. That's right, what Trump but, and his but, supporters but want to that's do. That's not what any of this is about. People well, can. No, it's not. It is when it. If, if, according Robbie, to the, can, according can I just to the, explain what, what I mean by that? Okay. What I mean by that is, if people come across the border, many of them choose to claim asylum, right? Yes. And they go to asylum centers and claim asylum. That even under the limits, whether it's a zero limit or two thousand or three thousand or five thousand limit, people still have the right to do because nothing the Republicans are doing and can do in this moment eliminates the, the bedrock basic, the law already in place with respect to asylum. But, uh, but the difference is people who are 
who don't choose to um, claim asylum at these specific asylum centers, as I understand it, they later, once they're caught, can say, oh, I'm claiming asylum. And that would be, implicate those people under this under this new Biden right. law asylum system. So Republicans are saying there can, there's going to be zero crossings at the border. That's not, in effect, what this will do. All this will do is say that people who want to make that asylum claim have to just come across and go to an asylum center. They can still make the asylum claim and hang around. Or alternatively, you're still going to get people, as always has happened, Happened, who sneak across the border, is you know, disappear into the country, work under the table, and live their lives. But the idea that because some law goes into effect, those people aren't still going to be able to sneak across the border in the same way that they've always snuck across the border, it doesn't actually change the number of border crossings. The bill says what Republicans want is that everyone caught crossing the border gets sent back home. Right. They want That's to, what they, they want. want. This bill doesn't do that, the asylum so they don't support it. Right. But they don't have an alternative to get rid of this asylum laws. Well, okay, a, but they're not, that's, that's why they're not going to support lift. this bill. Right. So what they're basically saying is they don't want to do any of the things that could actually address the, address the crisis. Any of the things. We're not having Again, to be touched, they think, by the way. They think sending the people back when they're caught is the way to address it. But that historically hasn't been the case. You have an incredible number of repeat attemptees, right? People didn't come from thousands of miles away, oftentimes on foot and in different situations, to be dropped back in Mexico 100 miles away and not try re-entry again. There's a fundamental question here that's not being addressed about why so many people are fleeing their countries to begin with, which, as we've discussed, has a lot to do with American foreign policy. But secondly, there is this question of why not try to address the fundamental crisis? Why not allow funding that would process these claims and be able to reject, finally, in a, in a, in a way with finality, people who really don't have asylum claims? Why not just say, fine, there's all of these billions of dollars of funding that Joe Biden is willing to say are going to go to our border guards and all these folks that were once characterized as American heroes because they're trying to patrol our border and keep it safe and to process these claims. Why not simply fund it so that this asylum process that, frankly, was one of the proudest things that our, our country, uh, one of the, the proudest features of our country that enabled most of the American population to get here? Why shut that down instead of just funding it so that it can work, except for because you want a political stunt? And you don't really care about these bedrock American values. You just care more about your own electoral chances, okay. which aren't even really the threatened in this moment. The conservative position is that the system doesn't need more funding. Joe Biden can make different choices that are under his jurisdiction to help bring this situation under control. And Republicans are not going to—Republicans— the Trump aspect of the party wants much harder caps on how many people can enter the country, legally or illegally, frankly, reject the asylum system as a loophole, and don't want to fund it any more intently. Again, well, I'm just giving you the—again, yeah. well, this is not even particularly my view. This is the conservative consensus view right now, which I'm— It's worth noting that Trump once used the same language to, to shut down the U.S.-Mexico border. He didn't follow through on it. Um, it was criticized by Democrats at the time as being draconian and xenophobic. Uh, this is—I'm reading some reporting from the AP that's going through some of the history of how this happened. Um, and it says that the closest that Trump ever came was during the pandemic when he used Title 42 authority. Joe Biden, of course, got into hot water with his own party for not disabling that Title 42 authority, which allowed um, him to basically subvert the asylum process in the name of COVID. That ultimately expired before there was any uh, constitutional review of that policy. But in so many ways, 
Biden has continued Donald Trump's immigration policy. I think what everyone's going to discover is that the spike in immigration has nothing to do with any rhetoric that's coming out of any administration, has nothing to do with any of these policies, except for the fact that conditions in much of the rest of the world are declining precipitously, largely because of American foreign policy. And if you want to, people who are desperate not to flee the homes that they don't want to leave, it's worth addressing that instead of acting like you can put barbed wire up at a border and expect to, through sheer force and violence, keep people from fleeing situations that are already so violent that they're willing to give up everything to leave them. More Rising right after this. In 2024, independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. denied reports that he could be Donald Trump's vice president if elected. I have to ask, the latest speculation is that maybe, maybe you would be the VP for Trump. Would you ever do that? Uh, I don't think that my marriage would survive it. I think he's right. <laughs> Just president. That's all you want. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. RFK also appeared on Fox News yesterday to discuss his presidential run and his chances as an independent in this election year. Is the two-party system broken? It's definitely broken. And I think more and more people are seeing how corrupt it is. And the corruption is increasing. You know, there was a um, Bernie Sanders, some of Bernie Sanders' followers uh, sued the Democratic Party a couple of years after 2016 in federal court right. and the for fixing the the vote against Bernie and the federal judge said yeah it is against their own rules they broke they violated their own rules but they are a club and they're allowed to do that mm. and that ruling gave the party empowered the party with permission because before that they were at least pretending to uh, uh, to be neutral in elections and to not fix the outcome, and now they have no restraints, and you've got you know all this corporate money pouring into them, you know from these big military contractors, from the pharmaceutical right. companies, and uh, and and both parties are receiving the money from the same groups, and it's fixed against the American, it's rigged against the American public. Of course, uh, the system is such that you've got to get ballot access on all 50 states. Uh, yeah. We're just about out of time for this segment. Are you gonna be able to do that? Yeah, we will be in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. And speaking of Bernie Sanders, Democratic strategist James Carville said the Vermont senator is one of the reasons that Trump won in 2016. I don't want to relitigate 2016 but Bernie Sanders cost is a reason, it's one of the reasons that Trump is at. I think this is great that Nikki Haley is saying, in. I hats off to these Republican donors that continue to support her. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, obviously she doesn't have that much chance, but every day that she's in there, every day that she's on the attack is a good day. What's incredible there? I mean, apart from saying, I don't want to relitigate 2016, but let me relitigate 2016, is that he's making this backhanded compliment that just like Bernie was a spoiler in 2016, Nikki Haley is going to be a spoiler for uh, Biden. I don't know that either things are true. I, if, if What's the evidence that— uh, well, so it, doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's, it's the idea that 
First of all, Bernie Sanders in 2016 voted for Hillary Clinton in higher numbers, a higher percentage than Hillary voters in 20, uh, 2008, when she lost the primary, voted for Barack Obama. More Hillary voters in 2008 held out because, for whatever reason, they didn't like Barack Obama than, than Bernie Sanders supporters, which overwhelmingly fell in line and voted for Hillary yeah. Clinton. I, I think it's that she didn't campaign in the two states she ended up losing, <laughs> right. but uh, more, more know, galaxy brain take. Right. Moreover, the comparing Nikki Haley, who's, what, like 60 points behind in the polls, to Bernie Sanders, who got like 44 percent of the primary vote in 2016 and came very close to winning and might have, frankly, won, but for the DNC uh, shenanigans that RFK Jr. was alluding to, where in their own lawsuit, uh, the, the, the DNC argued that it had a right to rig the primary in favor of its preferred candidate. Who knows what would have happened? So it, it, the comparison is ridiculous all over the place. And there's no no evidence, frankly, that Nikki Haley and what she's doing is hurting Trump right. at all from a general election standpoint. It's, maybe it's making him a little mad from day to day, but there's no real question he's going to beat her unless, again, something weird happens with the legal situation, right. which really has nothing to do with Nikki Haley's own efforts. Um, there's no evidence this is causing—this is dampening enthusiasm for Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. In fact, we had new polling this morning from Bloomberg Morning Consult. I think we can put that up, uh, showing the polling— Biden's uh, Trump's polling versus Biden, all states he's up six, and then specifically in the swing states, North Carolina, Trump plus ten, Nevada, Trump plus eight, Georgia, Trump plus eight, Wisconsin, Trump plus five, Michigan, Trump plus five, Pennsylvania and Arizona, Trump up just plus three. So Trump's winning all of the all yeah. of the swing states right now. Um, you know, maybe there's time for Joe Biden. I guess I'd be looking at Arizona and Pennsylvania with a sliver of hope. But there, but. This is all good news for Trump. He's not, like, losing momentum. He's not even the candidate yet. Now, maybe when he becomes the candidate and the media focuses more on what he's saying, people will recall why they didn't want to vote for Trump in 2020. I guess that has to be the theory of Biden's campaign right now. But um, th there's no evidence that he's suffering because of Nikki Haley. There's no evidence right now he's suffering at all. If the election were held today, he would win decisively. There's just not a big enough slice of Republican voters that are interested in Nikki Haley right now to be— no. that concerned about those voters not falling in line and voting for uh, Trump or whoever the Republican nominee is. I mean, to the extent that she overperformed in New Hampshire, it was largely because so many Democrats in New Hampshire voted for her. She does very well with Democrats. And I don't, I don't even particularly mean that as a slight, but realistically speaking, it's just absurd to compare that to the Bernie phenomenon. And one other point about the, <laughs> the Bernie phenomenon is that if you really were concerned about beating Trump, Polls in advance of the 2016 election showed that Bernie Sanders was up on Trump significantly, often like 10 points up compared to Hillary's four points up. Hillary remained within the margin of error in polling with Trump for all but about two weeks around the time of the Access Hollywood uh, tape. It was close throughout, much closer than it should have been. So the idea that the, Demo the DNC rigged the primary in favor of the candidate that was less likely to beat Donald Trump, and then you're going to blame the candidate who was running to actually have a chance of defeating Donald Trump well, Hillary was is both, bizarre. Hillary was both an incredibly weak candidate whose weaknesses were just not recognized by Democratic elites who were so blinded to that. It was and sexism, so it's didn't you hear? Right. That's, that they told us uh, <laughs> over and over again. And then one of the worst-run campaigns in terms of the demonization of half of the country, the refusal to campaign and what ended up being—and what were clear, like, that, that's not hindsight. It was clear ahead of time that those were going to be the swing states. Those were where, um, where working-class um, Rust Belt voters were—were uh, were 
more pro-Trump and were, you know, people who'd voted for Obama twice were not sold on the Hillary message, and she just didn't campaign there. Yeah, 100%. Picked a total non-entity for VP. We could go, I'm sure that it's been litigated on the show. I know, I know, I'm sorry. This is like my bugaboo. No, 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 it's, it's, that's fair. But before we move on, what did you make of Cheryl Hines's um, uh, response <laughs> to that reporter's question cute. about being You know, VP? I think they, they look cute together on TV. <laughs> that's a very shallow <laughs> thing to say about a political, but they're also celebrities. So, uh, no, RFK Jr. has been very clear that he doesn't want to be part of the Trump ticket of the Trump administration or the Biden administration. He is running his own independent campaign for president, and uh, Cheryl Hines supports him. We've heard a little bit from her on Do you, do you her, think uh, that kind of glib well. remark um, hurts him with a significant part of his base that I think likes both he and Trump? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, if he this is no, this isn't a Vivek situation. If he liked Trump so much, why is he running against him? Mm -hmm. He he has differences with Donald Trump and with Joe Biden, um, and he's going and you know he's I mean he's running obviously a lot of the I guess co you know COVID mandate opposition, but on a lot of that, that's some of Trump's weakest issues with his own base is the perception that he you know sold the country out to Dr. Fauci. So uh, I, I don't think that's gonna shake any any Trump to RFK people. Yeah, I just liked watching her jaw clench when the question was asked. <laughs> All right, stick around. We're rising right after this. MSNBC's Rachel Maddow interviewed E. Jean Carroll on her show this week, who former President Donald Trump is now required to pay $83 million in damages to for defamation. Maddow asked Carroll what she's going to do with the money uh, she's set to receive from the former president. Here's what she had to say. You've talked about using some of Trump's money that you're about to get um, to help shore up women's rights. Do you know what that might be, what that might look like? Yes, or, Rachel. Yes. Tell me. I had such, such great ideas <laughs> for all the good I'm going to do with this money. First thing, Rachel, you and I are going to go shopping. We're going to get completely <laughs> new wardrobes, new shoes, motorcycle for Crowley, new fishing rod for Robbie. Rachel, what do you want? Penthouse? It's yours, Nothing. Rachel. Penthouse and uh, France? You want France? You want to go fishing nope. in France? No? Oh. All right. All right. Okay. That's a joke. <laughs> That's a Although, joke. If, if me fishing in France... Could yeah. do something for women's rights, I would take the hit. You know, I would obviously uh, take one for the team. I All right, let me, let me, uh, <laughs> as if, as if you need persuasion in that regard. So we haven't, um, I don't think we've talked about this case super a lot on the show. E. Jean Carroll accused Donald Trump of sexual misconduct from an incident long ago. Um, she won that civil action, and and then also yeah. was sued him for um, for defamation. Right. I think it was a $5 million, judgment, $5 million judgment for the civil action. And then when Donald Trump continued to say that she was a liar and she was crazy and she made it up, she exactly. sued him for that and won an $80 million judgment. Mm -hmm. So, look, I saw that clip going around on social media a lot. Obviously, I mean, she's joking there. I don't know that the joke quite lands, but she's joking. She has every right to joke. She's entitled to do whatever she wants with the money she got fairly from the jury, as Nikki Haley said the other day. Like, she, the jury is the jury. That's what they decided. So you don't have to like it, but that's just kind of how it works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I guess I would say, how should I say this? I think her, you know, she has also said, E. Jean Carroll has said that she would do anything in her power to help Joe Biden to defeat Donald Trump. 
I would say that she has very much leaned into being kind of a political actor in this whole thing, which, again, she can do that if she wants. I think maybe that has lent credence to some people who will just dismiss the accusations as politically motivated and part of just the effort to delegitimize Trump. I'm not saying that's correct or accurate at all, and she's entitled to do whatever she wants, and it really doesn't—that's fine. I think probably it would have been better if she had probably not said so forcefully and so frequently that she wants to, to, to help be part of the effort to defeat Donald Trump electorally, why? but she's entitled to do that if she wants. I mean, why? I mean, she's not running for office. Who, she is not concerned about her optics. She doesn't need the public to think anything about right. her. Right. I mean, for the reason the I other. just said, that it will cause people to, to dismiss this as politically motivated. I don't know what that, uh, what that has to do with E. Jean Carroll. I mean, she won her case. She won her, her cases, you know. And there was, of course, there was a meltdown over this uh, Rachel Maddow clip. Um, frankly, I hadn't watched it. I'd, I'd seen people reacting to it, like uh, people just really losing their tops over it. And now having just seen it, I mean, it, look, it's clearly a joke, a woman from, from her perspective. She was raped in the 90s by the former president of the United States, then future president of the United States. And uh, when she talked about it, he called her a bunch of names about it and attacked her reputation. She sued him, and she won twice in a court of law. And she's taking a victory lap about someone who she says raped her. And the idea that it is somehow that I, my critique should be that the woman who, after decades, gets a win against one of the most powerful men in the world, who she says literally raped her, I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of energy. To, she wants to pop off a joke on MSNBC. I have a really hard time um, getting especially angry about that. Uh, it's worth noting that Trump says he's going to uh, appeal this judgment. Um, he's apparently order, uh, interviewing new lawyers. He's not going to stick with his old team for that. So this saga is not, by any stretch of the imagination, um, done. <laughs> uh, and it'll, it'll be interesting to see if there's any um, law firms that want yeah, to Yeah, I actually, on that uh, note, so Alina Habba, his attorney, there has been some reporting this morning that she may have been replaced. Yeah. She might be out. Um, I don't think this has been con confirmed, but I saw some discussion of this on social media, and Newsweek has a headline that she appears to have been replaced. I think this is going off a Truth Social post. Um, where, yes, okay, here it is, where Trump says, I'm in the process, along with my team, of interviewing various law firms to represent me in an appeal. Um, so he is not, I think, happy with the her performance. Yeah. Lost, so. I mean, this 80, $83.3 million judgment follows, of course, Rudy Giuliani being ordered to pay a $148 million defamation judgment against the two African-American women that he accused of uh, stuffing ballot boxes and also being uh, drug mm -hmm. purveyors. Um, Fox News obviously having to pay the $787 million uh, lawsuit to Dominion. Alex Jones being ordered to pay $1.5 billion to the Sandy Hook parents, um, which raises some interesting questions about how d defamation seems to be a more dependable route to some kind of you know, if, you know, substantive justice, I know people feel differently about each of those scenarios and whether or not mm -hmm. the uh, wrongdoer in that scenario really 
did something bad. Obviously, many people don't believe that Donald Trump ever raped E. Jean Carroll or might think that it's punitive for, I don't know that anybody's really denying that uh, Rudy Giuliani defamed those two women, but some people, I guess, think that the judgment is too extreme. But it is interesting that a pattern does seem to be emerging where defamation lawsuits are more successful in creating some kind of accountability, whether or not you think it's deserved, but some accountability for figures unlike other kinds of contexts. Right, because defamation, uh, especially against um, public figures, has in the past been it's a tough, pretty hard to it's prove. It's a tough thing to prove. Especially in the, in the United States versus other countries. In other countries, even kind of our peer countries, Australia, the UK, it's much easier to prove. And um, the medias there are a lot more afraid of running um, provocative stories about celebrities because of the, including in the Me Too category, because of, of how tough it is for you. And historically, that's not been the case in the U.S. So I wonder if um, some kind of shift is underway. We'd have to look I mean, at I, I do think part of what's happening is that those men in particular acted with such impunity. I mean, it, they weren't fringe cases. Uh, Alex Jones was told again and again, you're putting yourself at risk, stop talking about this. Obviously, here's the body of my dead child, please stop. And he not only continued to defame the Sandy Hook families, he earned millions of dollars off of that project, basically sold mugs for their tragedy, you know, proverbially, right. proverbially, and was held accountable for it. Same with Donald Trump. I mean, years, he, he still won't stop talking about um, E. Jean Carroll despite these uh, judgments. So just right wing figure, uh, yeah, well, Mainstream outlets, you know, CNN and a bunch of others had to pay out uh, to the Covington kids. Um, um, Rolling Stone and everybody had to pay out to uh, to um, the the fraternity students from mm -hmm. that story, and, and actually to a dean at the University of Virginia, and so on. So there, there is a yeah, defamation is I, some I, kind I, of rough justice. If, yeah, you know, I, I think um, law firms kind of specializing in that sort of thing are, are getting, uh, there's more of like expertise in that this category like of like fighting the media over unfair statements is um, is kind of coming along and has gotten more professionalized. Well, given that you get a piece of that uh, <laughs> what, a, a, almost eight hundred million dollar uh, Fox News judgment or these these are enormous judgments here. Well, for so the can... Trump and the Giuliani cases, I think it has to make you wonder. You know, when you're giving money to, if you're a Republican donor, you know, you're out there writing your check to the campaign to help. Are you help? Is this a is this to pay for TV advertisements in swing states to help elect Donald Trump, or is this to help pay the legal bills? Yeah, these, this is a huge problem the, the Republican Party has right now. These, these are yearly fundraising average-sized yeah. judgments. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see if that actually affects uh, Trump's uh, campaign team at all. Stay with us. We're going to have more Rising Free right after this. Bombshell new audio appears to show a whistleblower privately warned embattled Georgia DA Fonnie Willis that her top aide was abusing federal funds. Now, in the audio, Willis appears to agree with this whistleblower and say that she'd look into it. Yet a little less than two months later, the staffer who raised the concerns was fired. Let's take a listen to that audio. He told everybody in front of Crystal, Deontay, everybody, we're going to get MacBooks, we're gonna do that, we're gonna get swag, we're gonna use it for travel. I said, you cannot do that. It's a very, very specific grant. Took me off. I questioned Junior DA. There's kids in there from out of the, the um the county, all this. Took me off Junior DA. I did not want to do it. He made it look as if I wasn't doing what I needed to do because I questioned him. 
Because so, I knew for a fact Mr. Cutfee respectfully did not know what he was doing. So, period. So I respect that is your assessment. Um, it was clear to me that you and Mr. Cuffey were not getting along. And I'm not saying that your assessment is wrong. I want you to really listen to the words I'm saying. Cuffy, and this is my personal opinion to one woman to another, is dangerous to your administration. Yeah, so the implication here is that this whistleblower came forward about another employee who wanted to misuse grant funds. And after coming forward in that kind of, you know, nervous, heated, excited way that we just heard, she was the one that was ultimately fired. Now, you also did hear Fannie Willis say, I know that you guys have been having trouble at work. So this is a snippet of a broader circumstance. Who right. knows? There's other reasons that people could be fired. Sometimes people are substantively in the right, but there are employment problems that absolutely out outstrip the conflict at issue here. Who knows? Absolutely. We should proceed cautiously. This, so this whistleblower who was fired um, spoke to the Free Beacon, the Washington Free Beacon, and provided this audio. But I have to say, what's alleged in here is extremely serious. Um, what the whistleblower says is that this grant, and the whistleblower worked uh, doing, uh, in the DA, in Fonnie Wilson's office, doing work with um, nonviolent juvenile offenders. Um, you know, this is important work. Um, that, that they received a grant from the federal government earmarked for the creation of a center of youth empowerment and gang prevention. Again, that sounds like a very worthy cause for public funding. And, and what she says is this is other employee, Michael Cuffey, wanted to use it to purchase swag, computers, and travel um, to, you know, misuse funds for the greater enjoyment of the office. And she went to Fonnie Wills and said, he can't do that. That's not what, what it's for. This is exactly what we want. This is what everyone wants. When there's misuse of public funding for government employees to speak up and report it and say something about it. That's what we all want. So good for her for doing that. Um, and Fonnie Willis there is trying to, you know, put her, calm her down. It, it's clear this was a, you know, a difficult workplace that she didn't get along with the person. Fonnie Willis tries to calm her down, and then we don't know what happens, but she lets her go two months later. Um, a very serious accusation that we would need to learn more about. Obviously, we need to hear the other side of the story. But um, I'm glad this person has come forward because, frankly, it, independent of the Trump case, it really doesn't have anything to do with the it Trump case. It could Trump speak, case. you know, further to just Fannie Willis's judgment. Obviously, she's involved in this um, other um, uh, national story about uh, whether she similarly misappropriate whether she herself misappropriated public funds by um, by hiring her uh, her lover at the time who's now uh, divorcing his wife and it, they are a couple it seems to be and then that he not that hiring him was necessarily wrong but then he took her on trips so it was in some indirect way a kickback um, and that's all coming out um, through his own, this Nathan Wade, his uh, divorce um, action going on. Right. So, again, the reason this is a national story at all uh, is because there has been a political effort. I don't—that's not a value judgment. I think that's just yeah. descriptive. A political effort to undermine the Georgia case against Donald Trump by having increased scrutiny at Fonnie Willis. And it's dug up now both the allegation that she— hired her lover who was underqualified to do the work and overpaid to do the work uh, in this kind of a uh, soft, you know, kind of a kickback scheme. And now also that she may have retaliated against a whistleblower, again, 
unsubstantiated at this point. We don't know if the other person that was whistleblown on was also fired. Maybe there was a lot of discord in the office and people had to be fired for interpersonal reasons. We really don't know. But that does seem to be the implication. But in, in a lot of ways, I don't know. We don't need this story to know that Fonnie Willis has already demonstrated bad judgment yeah. in the context of um, yeah. adjudicating Donald Trump's if case. If this is true, in some ways, this is worse. It's some sort of worse. It's but very it's, bad. It's, the, the point is that Fonnie Willis, even if it was just mere optics, there was an interesting write-up in, in Politico a few days ago um, written by Ankush uh, Karadori. And they made the argument that, you know, having a relationship isn't illegal, even having a relationship with someone that you're working with, even if it's cheating, they're cheating on their spouse. None of those things are illegal, whatever you think the ethical implications of them are. Um, but the question is whether or not he, she, he was overpaid and whether or not he was hired when otherwise he wouldn't have been hired because right. it inured to the personal benefit of Fonnie Willis, which, again, I think distinguishes it from the Cory Bush case, where at least the Congressional Budget, uh, Congressional Ethics Office looked at this and said, well, he is qualified to work security for her, and he is getting paid a standard amount, and she does have these real security needs based on the number of threats that she's getting. This Fonnie Willis stuff— is different, and the, the, the case that this political argument makes is that the, her worst crime is basically how she's addressed it since the scandal has come out. She hasn't taken on the crit criticisms head on at all. She's made these vague allusions to the fact that she is being attacked for, for, racial, being re for re re racial reasons. And uh, this person says, at the end of the day, you just have to address fraud accusations like this quickly and then deal with it. The case can be reassigned to a different prosecutor. There's a lot of political interests the Democrats have in resolving this and moving on. And instead of doing that, she seems to be treading water. Uh, she has to make a response filing on February 2nd, as I understand it. And, you know, the article says, well, she's in her rights to wait until then to respond in a more fulsome manner. But in the interim, her reputation is just getting worse and worse. And she's taking down with it the integrity of this important yeah. case against Donald Trump. And, and this whistleblower—I didn't use her name, her name, but her name is Amanda Timpson. She has been named. This isn't an anonymous accusation against, uh, against um, Fonnie Willis. She has come forward to present her side of the story. She gave audio to support her side of the story. You know, she's—because I always caution, you can only do so much with people anonymously complaining about the environment in their, in their work. I mean, that's true of whoever the administration is. It gets to be a little—like, the media loves it. Like, oh, insider in X office says— Everything's dysfunctional and everything's bad and this person's horrible. Okay, well, if you're not going to say it on the record, if you're not going to put your own credibility at stake, we can only do so much with it. She's come forward, which I think is, a, is, a, is important in a, in a case like this, and we would like to hear yeah. more about the situation. Um, and it doesn't, impact, doesn't really impact their argument against Trump, but it does no. look very bad. Uh, just get to look rid bad of her. DA. I just yeah. can't for the life of me understand why... She's not gone already, for the sake of the country. Democratic donors should be lining up to say, I'm going to give you some cushy job elsewhere if you just stepped out from this case and let it proceed, because the stakes are just so much higher than you. Obviously, she has pri I mean, sorry, yeah. I shouldn't say that. But the implication is that, she, you know, she— I mean, I don't quite know what the precise mechanism is here. Could she— Recuse herself, and they have have appointed some other DA to handle it. Does she need to actually exit the office? I don't. No, I don't think she has to exit the office like at all. That. But I think the case can be reassigned yeah, to a new prosecutor. It should not be handled by her at this point. Um, and even if it's not her, like move the partner at the very least off of the case. But I, it just this is so unnecessary. Why why are we holding on to these two people being involved? I just don't get it. Fun stuff. More rising right after this. 
Saturday Get Out the Vote event hosted by Vice President Kamala Harris became a little bit more controversial than intended when two women wearing hijabs were reportedly not allowed to enter by campaign officials. In a video which surfaced and went viral on X, a campaign officer is seen stopping the women from entering the event despite having an invite. Let's take a look. We are choosing who's going in and out of the event. I'm sorry. Why are you choosing us not to go in when we have an invite? Ray, you specifically singled us out. <laughs> That's racist. Is it because we have the jobs? I'm happy to talk to so it is. someone else. It is, because it is. that's clearly, I, I was afraid of this. You singled us out, out of everybody. What? Isn't that against Democrats? Whole campaign? That's very Islamophobic. That's very racist. I'm sorry. Are you? You guys come Keep coming through. We have you're an invite. You're part of the LGBT community too, right? And you're still going to kick come us out? Come on through. Are you serious? That's crazy. Wow. I, now I really won't vote for Biden and Harris. That's crazy. Now, some viewers call the supposed behavior by the Harris campaign staff hypocritical and asked if it went against Democrats' whole campaign pitch. As the video continued, the women chided the campaign official, asking him, if this is what democracy was all about, take a look. They're racist, Islamophobic, the obviously. And you're being racist. They're disinviting us because we have hijabs on our heads. That's why, people. This is not a democracy. This is disgusting. Obviously, we're the only hijabi women that's kind of clear. They're disinviting us because we have scarves on our heads. That's disgusting. When we have an invitation, just like everyone else, what is the problem? Now, a spokesman for the Biden campaign said on Twitter, quote, these individuals were among the group of people not allowed to attend Saturday's event after previously disrupting and shutting down events with Democratic elected officials. Uh, no response from the uh, women involved to that yet. It's interesting, though, because this has become, protested events have become an enormous problem from the Biden administration. He literally cannot seem to go anywhere without getting disrupted. So it's hardly the, idea, the uh, evidence of, I think, individuals who are unusually disruptive or trying to just harangue the campaign out of nowhere. It is the fact that an enormous majority of Joe Biden's own base strongly objects to how he is handling the crisis in Gaza. And so NBC did some reporting about this uh, uh, just a few days ago in an article called Biden Team Ramps Up Strategy for Dealing with More Protests from the Left and the Right. It alludes to the right, I think, perhaps in a kind of media sleight of hand to make the, the audience dislike these protesters. Nothing in this article is about right-wing protesters. Okay. It's all people from within Biden's own party who are protesting about the siege of Gaza. Yeah. And in this article, there's an interesting admission. So you might say, well, people who have disrupted in the past shouldn't be admitted again. But in this article, it says that volunteers at events are being trained to keep an eye out for potential protesters, not people who have been protested before, but potential protesters going on to say that they are not able to stop them from attending, that these women were stopped from attending. At an event uh, last Tuesday in Virginia, for instance, volunteers noted attendees with pins alluding to their message on the Israel-Hamas war, which allowed officials to be on alert. That seems to be an acknowledgment that 
Biden campaign staffers are looking at people entering events for any indicia that they have solidarity with Palestine. And how could you not see hijabi women as in that group and say, and basically this is an admission, is it not? That campaign staffers are being asked to eyeball folks and come to conclusions about what people's politics are and then perhaps it deny them admission. admission. Right, so I went looking for more information on this and um, I, I looked and I Googled it and, and it, Kamala Harris did give a speech that was interrupted by protesters, so then I was saying, oh, I guess they did get in and they did interrupt. <laughs> no, that was a different, it's a different, different speech. totally different occurrence. Yeah. Now, look, <laughs> I frankly, find it perfectly plausible that those people did interrupt some previous event, planning, and that's why sure. they were being sure. um, prevented from entering. Uh, that's, not, that's not a crime. That's fine, I guess, for a political uh, official giving a, a speech to try to manage it in some way so that they won't be um, heckled by their own ostensible supporters. So I'm not, I'm not like, so outright outraged by what happened. Um, I, they, they weren't, like, they weren't abused or mistreated. They were just told they couldn't go in because... Because They're alleging they had some prior history of of uh, interrupting the protest, but you're right that it is reflective of a much broader problem for Biden and Harris that you want you want fired up you want people like this in the event fired up to cheer you and to make it seem like you have all these crowds and all these supporters and the fact that people at least on the on the Democratic side who are most likely to be activists and campaigning and out there and sharing messaging about your campaign on social media to the, the to be the real fired up cheerleader type people those people are the most dissatisfied with uh, with the administration of all in, within the coalition so it's going to be a huge problem it calls to mind you know fa failing um, LBJ, you know, toward the end of mm. his president, ends up trying, starts running for re-election and then doesn't because he's doing so poorly at the height of, of unpopularity, the Vietnam War, um, can only, the only place he could give speeches were like military, you know, like military mm -hmm. areas where there were going to be no they, protesters. Where they cannot object. Right, because <laughs> it would be shouted down by college students everywhere else. Yeah. Um, and then we ended up electing Richard Nixon. Yeah, I mean, th this is really Sounds real. If, 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 the, if the Biden administration is in a position where they're saying, we are going to, and again, this is just from this NBC News report that I'm, I'm getting this, this idea that staffers are eyeballing folks and trying to predict whether or not they're going to be a problem for him inside. That means not just profiling folks who are visibly Muslim, who overwhelmingly object to the siege of Gaza. It also means overwhelmingly profiling people who are young. That means pro overwhelmingly profiling, including young Jewish Americans. That means overwhelmingly profiling black Americans. Uh, can, can who you is going to be left? Um, excuse me, you can't come in here. No, I am Kamala Harris. Oh, excuse me, come right this way. <laughs> she might be over the age cutoff of people who, uh, who are invested in this. And also, I mean, it, it is. she's obviously not um, an Indian national, but it is interesting that uh, India is very, very, very supportive of Israel um, in this and in, in other things. But, you know, so it cuts both ways. But this is, it's such... This is not the kind of problem that they're going to be able to, um, you know, bouncer their way out of. And, and in fact, this is just adding another layer of bad optics because unlike the Republican Party, the Democratic Party has shrouded itself, has shielded itself 
from all kinds of accusations that it doesn't follow through in its commitments to historically marginalized people because it says at the end of the day, at least we're not discriminatory. At least we treat everybody equally. At least we care about black and brown people and gay people and everybody else. Look how inclusive our party is. And now you're getting optics and you're getting reporting. It's not just the optics of this given situation. It's reporting that says Biden staffers are eyeballing folks to get any indication that they are pro-Palestine before they're admitted into these kinds of events. And the implications of that, given how this is breaking down on racial and ethnic lines and, and religious lines, is really galling. Not to mention, by the way, that there was the event a few days ago, maybe it was the end of last week, after uh, UAW President Sean Fain's endorsement of Joe Biden, where it was widely reported that pro-Palestine protesters had been dragged out of uh, that event in Biden's speech as well. What was underreported is that those protesters were also UAW members. So are we now saying that members of one's own union aren't able to articulate their preferences? at a, an event after your own union president has come out in an endorsement of the ceasefire and then flipped and endorsed the guy who's very much anti-ceasefire. I mean, all of this is getting so messy and the, the press really isn't helping um, to clarify who is involved and what's at stake in this coverage. But the fundamental issue is that Biden's own policies make it so that he's going to have to return to a 2020 era style of campaigning and perhaps stay in the basement. I'm trying to think of what the equivalent is on the Trump side. I'm like, I can't imagine like anti-Trump activists showing up to like a Trump rally trying to sneak into heckle it. Um, the perceived uh, enemy protester type people at the Trump rallies was just the, the cameraman itself. <laughs> the most unpopular people. The people getting booed are the mainstream journalists covering it. That is an interesting question. There, in, in all of the kind of liberal objections to Trumps of, over the years, I don't remember there ever being an effort to appeal to him. I think that I think the difference is on some level there is at least the perception that Biden can be shamed into changing his behavior. I don't know that liberals believe that Trump could be shamed into changing his behavior. Even trying to shame is engaging with him is normalizing him and that's that's the maybe, greatest crime of all. Maybe They're just going to pretend that. he doesn't exist. They're going to ignore him. I mean the media is going to do this until he's president again. I, I also do wonder if people are worried about <laughs> what the reaction from the crowd would be if they did that at a Trump rally. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we won't get into that any further right now. More rising after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is calling for Congresswoman Ilhan Omar to be deported back to Somalia after a new video emerged, her seeming to claim that her primary job in Congress is to protect Somali interests. Here's some of that clip. Um, uh, DeSantis reposted the video on his personal account along with the caption 
expel from Congress, denaturalize, and deport. DeSantis wasn't alone in condemning Omar's rhetoric. Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, Republic of Somaliland, Rhoda J. Elmi, reposted the video as well, writing, quote, specifically troubling were her endeavors to revive the once violent and dangerous ideology of greater Somalia, which caused so much death, destruction, and conflict in the Horn of Africa. But some saw some issues with the calls to punish, even deport, American citizen Omar over her supposedly treasonous ties to other countries. The right-leaning American Spectator published an article claiming that the video's translation was being distorted for political ends. From The Spectator, uh, uh, a Somali analyst with the Heritage Institute for Policy Studies told me that on X— uh, excuse me, told me on X that Omar's words are being distorted to push an agenda. Similarly, Faisal Ali from The Guardian told me she didn't threaten to invade Somalia's neighbors. She didn't say she was Somali first and Muslim second. At the same time, dozens of self-labeled Somalia analysts, some flashing their credentials, got stuck in the online onslaught, spreading their own translations. Others called out the seeming hypocrisy of denouncing Omar for her pro-Somalia comments while remaining moot on the topic of rabidly pro-Israel members of Congress. Congress. One ex-commenter posted, quote, yeah, Ilhan Omar should be deported along with every member of Congress like this, alongside a picture of Burgess Owens's congressional office with massive pro-Israel signage all around it. Yeah, this is a really interesting time to say, if you say that you have solidarity with a country overseas and you want its borders to be protected and not invaded and have any other video else's territorial expansion, that gets you deported, but only if you're Ilhan Omar and not if you're the overwhelming bipartisan majority of Congress, who's basically said, we don't want to even have an investigation into whether or not Israel is doing any war crimes, because we're so committed to Israeli sovereignty. And in fact, saying anything that might even have the implication that you think Israel as a Jewish state shouldn't persist is de facto anti-Semitic, and we're going to pass a resolution that makes that that case under law. I mean, that's what the other side—like, that is what our government is actually doing, right, with respect to Israel. Ilhan Omar says in that statement, when this, when Somalian leader says, what are you going to do for Somalia, to say, I represent the Somalian Americans, and the Somalian Americans are going to advocate for what they want, like all Americans do at Congress, it's just such a stretch. I don't get it. What do, what do you make of it? I mean, I, I don't know if it's a stretch. I understand people—well, okay, first of all, she can't be denaturalized or deported or any of that. She has First Amendment rights. Um, the way to hold her accountable, if you don't like what she has to say, is run against her and defeat her. She has to be held accountable through the political process. I would be fine with that happening. Um, I, I can't speak to whether there are translation errors here, but I understand why— Even if there were, I was struggling with it. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I understand— um, people saying—a a member of Congress saying their first loyalty is to Somalia or Somalians and then to Islam, and then I'm not even mentioning America as a third thing. That was what many conservatives were objecting to. But I take—but it also—and this is the difference between me and, you know, the vast uh, explicitly pro-Israel people out there—I also find it a little odd that Israel's priorities seem more important than America's to members of Congress, that there's no shortage of money to be found for foreign wars and support for Israel's security and very little to be found at home. So that, like, I'm I'm similarly annoyed by that. I'm, I, I'm frankly, I can't understand being, if you're in a, I don't know, like, you should be for—you should have some pride in the country you're in that you're representing as a member of Congress. Like, if you don't think that, I don't know what you're doing. I'm, I'm not specifically saying that to her, just 
all of them. I don't. Well, John don't Fetterman's gotten big plaudits from many of the same people who are criticizing Ilhan Omar after he wrapped himself quite literally in an Israeli flag on several occasions, most recently standing on the roof of what was it, his offices. Um, and uh, responding during. Because it's enjoyable to, to watch him fight with. Activist. Sure. Literally wrapped himself on multiple occasions in an Israeli flag. Joe Biden recently, uh, after October 7th, said uh, during a, a, a press conference, quote, if Israel didn't exist, we would have to invent it. Um, uh, Hakeem Jeffries has referred to Jerusalem as the sixth borough of New York. And we have a, an interesting quote for an, uh, an old Nancy Pelosi appearance that was also going around that goes to how committed uh, establishment politicians on both sides of the aisle are to Israel, perhaps even over uh, U.S. interests. Let's take a look at that. According to one study that I have seen, 70 percent of people in our country, Jewish people in our country, voted Democratic in this election. So that is a very important point in terms of our connection. I have said to people when they ask me, if this capital crumbled to the ground, the one thing that would remain is our commitment to our aid. And I don't even call it aid, our cooperation. Yeah, I wish our government thought that, like, if the capital were to crumble to the ground, our one priority would be, I don't know, continuing to fund our own security or our own infrastructure or something like that, or our own nope. health care system. Aid to Israel. It would be modern, developed, the money affluent overseas. country <laughs> that we give more money to than yeah. any other country in the world, including Somalia, which is impoverished uh, and has humanitarian needs, gets, of course, less money in U.S. funding. Yes, I uh, wish all of our Israel. political figures would read the room a little bit better, Re read the room being the broader nation at large, the reason why there's a lot of the America first sentiment thriving on the right and, uh, and, and not just on the right is that U.S. government officials for too long have been negligent when it comes to what's going on at home and are easy to find money for every other government under the sun, a friendly nation, supposedly. I don't even know what we're getting out of it. Frankly, it seems like we're getting less safe as a result. And uh, that makes a lot of people very angry. It's given rise to political figures um, like Donald Trump and others on the right, and probably some on the left as well, trying to um, reorient the priorities of the federal government in a more inward direction, and the elites keep missing it. Yeah, I think another part of the story that shouldn't go uncommented upon is is the threat the threat to deport her, an American citizen and sitting congresswoman. It's hard to imagine that that kind of threat would have been made against someone who was not one a recent immigrant and two also black and Muslim. And you know, it is it is interesting. Ron DeSantis is making. These charges. He's someone who framed his campaign as a war on woke and really put a target on a lot of these kinds of cultural issues. He seems to be doubling down on that, despite it not being especially successful for him in the at least national political realm. I don't know that making these kind of charges against elected officials, saying that you want to deport someone um, because you disagree with them, um, when you have never said anything like that about any number of other political actors, it's, it's going to continue to re reflect poorly on the party well, and I mean, really I, affirm people's uh, expectations again, that they're I, not exactly hospitable to folks with any kind of diversity, including recent immigrants of any color. Well, I, again, I think he was reacting to what seemed to be a professed loyalty to Somalia over the government she's an ostensible representative so you, of. So you can imagine that he would say you should deport John Fetterman for wrapping himself in an Israeli flag well, or deport Fetterman Nancy Pelosi? 
deport, for saying— can't deport any of these people. Exactly. Because, but somehow it seems more— Well, he's more, allowed to say that. Yeah. And I'm saying that—I think the obvious implication <laughs> Just like is— like she's allowed to say it. I think the obvious implication is that somehow Ilhan Omar is more deportable than some of these other people. And that's why folks are calling it out as bigoted. Yeah. I mean, she could be—I I just read this Newsweek article about it. She could be— um, uh, forced to register as a foreign ad. I mean, that's going on with um, with, uh, with Menendez a right now. Right, and AIPAC. Who's uh, a good example of someone who has put foreign government's interests ahead of the U.S. in a in a criminal and corrupt and chargeable way, one that uh, Democrats and Republicans recognize is a major scandal that he has been, and uh, doing it, it's seemingly not for ideological, I mean, maybe it's for ideological reasons yeah. as well, but also just for personal enrichment. Yeah. But the, the, I mean, the big story here is really how APAC has managed, unlike all these other foreign lobbying groups, not to have to register as a foreign agent the way that any other country's lobbying group has. And the history of all of this is fascinating. I've been reading John Mearsheimer's uh, history of APAC in the United States. And it is incredible how differently it is treated than other national interest groups. And it is remarkable that, again, Ilhan Omar continues to be the target of all of these kinds of attacks, precisely because she has historically been willing to criticize APAC. Oh, I don't know that it's remarkable, but uh, there's too much of it. More rising right after this. Russell Brand sat down with Tucker Carlson to discuss what he has faced in the mainstream media in the past year, which to Russell has included cancellation and what he describes as defamation. And he weighs in on the media's alleged attempts to silent independent voices. I recognize that the new emergent media spaces present a lot of possibilities, even with your kind compliments about our reporting on the Ukraine. All we've essentially done is listen to brilliant academics talking about the history of NATO and the coup in 2014 in Ukraine and Putin's explicit declaration that he would prefer, let's put it mildly, that Ukraine were not invited into NATO, that some of the regional disputes, how they're escalating tensions. This is information that because of independent media is available and perhaps the function that we, our media organisation, have fulfilled has been to collate that information and convey it directly in an accessible manner to give people an alternative perspective than to the homogenized mainstream opinion, yes. which amounts to, I've learned over the last few years, the amplification and normalization of the agenda of the powerful, that no opinions can be allowed into that space. And I'm astonished by how jealously it is guarded. There are points in my life where my personal self-regard would have loved the idea that I would be considered important enough to a attack on this scale to spend this amount of revenue and resources on. But I'm now seeing that independent media itself is an extraordinary threat. That independent media inevitably leads to independent politics and independent thought. Uh, here's a little bit more from Bran on the legacy media significant attempts to control the information space that are so rigorously adhered to and protected that even what you might imagine to be a marginal voice is considered a significant enough threat to warrant coordinated media attacks, expenditure on peculiar clandestine non-government organisations and think tanks that take their money from the military industrial complex from the legacy media, who by the way, when they're critiquing independent media, they got skin in the game. They're not able to independently assess your work or my work or the medical opinions of Joe Rogan. They have a vested interest in destroying those organizations. 
It explicitly states on the Trusted News Initiative website, we are no longer in competition with one another. We have to curtail and stamp out. I think it even uses the word choke independent media. And it's clear that there are now sets of globalist organizations funded by government, but also corporations that are making deliberate, profound attempts to shut down any dissent in an astonishingly aggressive way. And to be sort of caught up in it is uh, terrifying on one level, absolutely terrifying, particularly due to the nature of allegations that I faced, but also revealing, more importantly, it's revealing about the way, the, the way that I believe the world and in particular this space will be affected and the way these events will continue to unfold in the coming years. So Brand uh, makes a number of, I think, very accurate um, evaluations of the shape of the media landscape and the alternative media landscape. And it's a reminder of the importance of doing, in the, in the alternative media landscape environment, of doing original reporting. And uh, so we can platform a lot of original reporting. We have you know, expert people come on. And then people who have thrived in this space, some of them themselves do a lot of great in-depth reporting, like Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. They are doing some of the, the you know, best alternative alternative media work out there but they're you know they're getting scoops they're they're looking for original documents they're doing things like that um, just you know just having a you know a show like like ours and just reacting all the time you know to things people are saying can have I, I think it, it has some value because we have a tremendous audience we have very loyal viewers they can share those segments but it, it what I was hearing from him earlier on was a, a call to do more original work so we both started doing more uh, more of our radars again more monologues again which a little have a little bit more of our their opinion and analysis but are a little bit more in depth we do a lot more in-depth research to make them um, to 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 bulk them up make them a little bit stand out more than our normal segments. And I think that's very good and very necessary so we don't just become an echo chamber unto ourselves because we lack some of the resources of, I mean, I'm saying this as we're attached to a perfectly mainstream large media organization, um, but uh, but media organizations that are in the mainstream have, the, have entire newsrooms and everything working to do often very good reporting. I'm not throwing it under the bus at all, um, especially not the work our organization does. They do tremendous political reporting um, and tremendous. They have actually very compelling uh, content on our sister TV channel, News Nation, which I'm increasingly a huge fan of. But the alternative media ecosystem needs to to platform more original reporting in addition to analysis is a long way of what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, look, the trends are clear. Fewer people are watching legacy media. More people are looking at media, uh, independent media. We, as we're talking, there's a congressional hearing going on uh, relating to social media use where there's a, a kind of a bipartisan consensus that's emerged that there's something dangerous about social media and alternative media um, efforts to ban TikTok that are very thinly uh, ideologically veiled. Um, apparently, right now, um, people are uh, at this hearing. I'm, I'm seeing uh, some critique of TikTok because people are talking more about Taylor Swift than Tiananmen Square. I don't know, like this idea that it's a it's a Chinese hoax because people aren't on TikTok. Mm -hmm. The kids the kids aren't talking enough about Tiananmen Square. Yeah, <laughs> Zuckerberg and uh, Linda Yaccarina are there too, <laughs> being uh, being grilled. So it's not even specifically TikTok, but I'm sure he's fielding a lot of questions. Right. I'm going to be. After we get done with the show today, I'm going to be processing the hearing, and I will likely have a radar on it tomorrow. Yeah, but that, that's all to say that that trend is happening, and I think it's ultimately for the good. But to your point, I don't think—it's not just to say, oh, it's independent so that it's good. There is a lot of independent media that is 
you know, reaction-based content that isn't as substantive, that is, uh, you know, there are different incentives that exist online. There might not be that, it might not be that a, a, a weapons manufacturer is running an ad on your program and so therefore you're not going to be critical of a war the way it might be in the mainstream news, but it might be that you know that your audience has an appetite for um, certain, you know, salacious content or a certain kind of politics that you may or may not share, and there can be a kind of audience captures in that way. So there's risks to any media enterprise. What I think grounds news, what grounds real report, you know, good content is real reporting. So that's why I would say, in particular, people like David Zaroda and what he's been doing with The Lever are incredible because to do actual reporting, and I, and I, and I appreciate the Twitter files and what Matt Taibbi has done there. But that is still a, a kind of a, a bunch of documents that have been, you were granted access to because of um, respect that Elon Musk had for him as a journalist, which was well-earned, and you know a kind of limited pool of documents and resources that came from one big disclosure. It takes an enormous amount of resources um, to be able to come up with scoops outside of the context of an individual relationship and to have a diversity of news stories that you cover the way that someone like um, um, uh, Sirota has tried to set up at a lever, hiring staff members that can actually travel across the country and do follow-up reporting. The exposés he's been doing on Boeing, he, he regularly gets these scoops, his organization regularly gets these scoops that are just parroted and regurgitated out by the mainstream media. We had um, Max Blumenthal on yesterday talking about the work that he's been doing at Gray Zone and that the Electric Infitada has been doing to try to dig into some of the reporting from the New York Times and other sources about the uh, October 7th allegations of sexual assault. And only now, because of his reporting, have other um, mainstream or mainstream outlets, The Intercept has done coverage on that now. And internally at the New York Times, as we reported yesterday, apparently they have even pulled one of their podcast episodes because of the questions that have been raised by independent reporting there. So it really, to me, all comes down to whether or not independent journalists are given the freedom to get to the root of facts. That's what should be driving all of this news coverage. Right. And too much of what we're learning about what's happening at the mainstream, it's not just that I think that people are meandering away from it because they are not interested in whatever new show is being hosted by whatever old press secretary from the Biden administration or the Bush administration that's propped up over there. I say that as a, as a former press secretary myself. I feel like I can make that critique. Yeah. But because the journalism, the fundamental stories that they're covering and the facts they're deploying are so attenuated um, from the real facts on the ground, and it's it's like 90 percent of their ideological priors, and you get the feeling that almost nothing that comes out uh, about what's going on in the world could affect the tone of how the coverage is being um, covered on, on those kind of channels. And I think that's the fundamental problem, and you get more of that authenticity in independent news. I should also note my colleagues at Reason, the magazine I also write for, who do a lot of foyering. and I have, a, I have yeah. a colleague there who actually just yesterday, I think he traveled 100 miles to go to a, a police headquarters to review documents that they then, for some reason, wouldn't let you take photos of, even though... The poly, like you can look at you have to look at them and like memorize them and copy them by hand, but you can't just take a photo of it. It's those kinds of yeah. anti-transparency policies that exist at the federal level, I'm sure, but oftentimes can be even more insidious at the local level where there's le less scrutiny and you can get away with that kind of thing. So there are good journalists out there doing good work, and we try to platform them and yeah. amplify their voices all the time. 
as do many others in this ecosystem whom we're paying close attention to. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be here. Same bat time, same bat channel. Is that an old Batman reference? I think it might you're, be. You're the, the nerd in residence. Uh, they tell me yes. Uh, <laughs> Batman from the olden days. Well, that. <laughs> All right. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, whether you're a Marvel or a DC fan, so you never miss any of this content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available wherever you get your podcasts. See you tomorrow to close out the week from us. And then there will be separate Rising Fridays content the day after that, if I have my days right. That's very bad at counting. That's right. You never tell what day it is, can you? (laughs) It is a Wednesday. See you later. Bye-bye.